0: Regarding the purpose of the church in our culture and truly you know if you've had if you're paying attention that grace bible church is not immune to those opinions even among you there's opinions as to the purpose of the church there have been strong opinions regarding grace bible church's purpose and direction you see we have an adversary the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. He is the author of confusion and controversy. Jesus has made his purpose for the church absolutely clear in Scripture. We just need to understand it. We just need to work to understand it because he's told us. We face so much. We've gone through COVID-19. We've, we've suffered through the political agenda of, of the progressives and the Democrat Party. We've, we've seen the culture shifting views on, on different topics such as racism. These are critical issues for the church. So I guess the question then becomes, how do we address them? How do we address those issues? You know, I think Tuesday is election day. And there's a question, that's a question we must answer. How do we address it? Should we involve ourselves more in the political landscape as we engage with the culture? Well, my answer is a, has been and is a qualified yes. Let me address the yes part of that. As Christians, we need to be aware of the political landscape and we need to, be, we need to participate at some level. And, and we do this by voting. When you vote, you should get to know the candidates to the best of your ability and, and, and vote for the ones who best align with biblical truth. You should understand the laws and, and vote in ways that are most consistent with biblical truth. If you don't know the best answers to these questions, you should consult Christian organizations that you can trust who can do the research and help you vote in those ways. Some Christians may even become directly involved by voting or by running for political office. Ultimately, I don't believe the Lord caused the Christian to withdraw from culture. And voting is a critical way to involve yourself. Even running for office may be appropriate for some. But having said that, I would argue that living your life consistent with biblical truth is the greatest way to influence the culture around us. In John 17, 14, Jesus prayed, to the Father, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even, though, even as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You, know, you've heard it, you may have heard it said, we are in the world, not of the world. Beloved, we must recognize that we do live in this world, yet we must not walk according to its ways. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that we are to be salt. We're to be salt. He says, here his words in, in Matthew five thirteen. He says, you are the salt of the earth, and if the, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be, to be trampled under the foot of man. You see, salt... Salt has a preserving effect. In other words, we're we're to live according to the truth of God's Word, and that will have a preserving effect on the culture around us. Jesus also says in Matthew 5 that as Christians, we are the the light of the world. We are the light of the world. As such, we are to live in such a way that the culture around us will see our good works and glorify our Father in Heaven. Friends, I would argue that we must act as Christians according to the truth. Therefore, we must be willing to, t- to stand for the truth as we approach our culture. This primarily concerns how we approach our family life and our church life and our work life. In each of those realms, we're to be salt and light. Recently, John MacArthur wrote a, an open letter to California's governor, Gavin Newsom, In that letter, he warned Gavin Newsom that that he would be judged by God for his wicked actions. In particular, MacArthur warned him about billboards that he had sponsored across America promoting the slaughter of children whom God has created in the womb. I want to read part of that letter to you, because I think it's instructive. In the words of MacArthur to Gavin Newsom, he says this, you further compound the wickedness of that Murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12:31, as if you could somehow twist their meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You use the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Moloch. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Furthermore, you chose the words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding the murder of his image bearers. End quote. Well, I believe this letter is a demonstration of the church's unique purpose in this world. You may notice that MacArthur took his stand firmly on a biblical truth. He doesn't seek to dull the sharpened. He doesn't seek to dull the sharpening and pierced, sharpened and piercing nature of the Word of God. Hebrews four twelve says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. But I want you to notice something else that MacArthur did in his letter. He personally warned Newsom of God's judgment. Just listen to his words. He says this, My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave, eternal peril. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. One day, and not very long from now, you will, see, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment you will stand in the presence of a holy God who created you, who is your judge, and who will demand that you give account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and see nothing awaits you but eternal misery, the just punishment for your sins what will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail for you then by then it will be too late for any remedy or redemption for it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god in that part of the letter you see macarthur allows scripture to judge the Thoughts and intentions of Governor Newsom's heart. And in doing so, he warns Newsom that there is no creature hidden from his sight and that he will give, that we will all give, and that he will give an account to our Creator. But let me give you the best part. In that letter, MacArthur also shared the gospel. Just listen. My plea to you, sir... Is that you would not let it come to that. And that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. End quote. Again, I think this demonstrates our unique purpose in this world. In Matthew 28, 19, or 18 to 20, Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples, to make disciples of all the nations. Just listen to his words. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, we make disciples by preaching the gospel. You want to change the world? Preach the gospel. That is our unique. That is the unique purpose of the church: is to preach the gospel so that our Lord would be glorified. In Romans ten fourteen, the apostle Paul asks some critical questions. He says, "How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him?" And whom they have not heard, how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things. Beloved, as a church, we've been sent to preach the good news of the gospel. And as we transition, let me put all this together for you. As a church, we have endured great difficulties. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are wondering why even bother to keep coming. Why even bother to keep doing this, right? In other words, why should we be committed to the church and love the church? Well, I think Al Mohler actually provides the simple answer to that question. He says this, I don't think we should expect those who go to church to think much of the church. People who are the church will love the church. Profound, right? If you are the church, you'll love the church. We love the church and stay committed to her because we are the church. And if you're not the church, it's impossible to think much of the church. You start thinking in terms of what you can see. You start thinking in terms of what programs that we give or what, uh, how many people are in attendance. Is the room full? Instead of recognizing that you are part of the church, that you are the church. So, considering the trials and confusion that we're enduring or have endured as a church, Keith and I have been talking and we thought it would be helpful and encouraging to you to take, for us to take a break from our Matthew series and our psalm series, we want to take the next few weeks, we want to bring clarity and a renewed focus by taking the next few weeks to study the ministry of the church. Now, we've titled this this series God's Abundant Harvest. And in this series, we will study, first, God's abundant purpose for the church by taking a fresh look at the pillars of Grace Bible Church's philosophy of ministry. We'll look, secondly, at God's plan for the church by taking a a, a fresh look at at Paul's instructions in Ephesians 4. And then, third, we're going to look at God's priority of church leadership by looking at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. In short, we want to reestablish our commitment to our Lord's purpose for the church. More than ever, we need to trust His promise to build His church from Matthew 16:18. And as we endure the incessant pounding of the culture and those who oppose God's purpose, we need to cling to Jesus' guarantee that the gates of Hades will not overpower His church. With that, I'll take the next two Sundays to reestablish God's abundant purpose for Grace Bible Church. If you've been here long, you've heard this, but I believe it's good for us to take a fresh look at the pillars of Grace Bible Church Gainesville. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at (coughs) the four pillars. At Grace Bible Church, we exist first to exalt God. Second, we exist to exposit the Word. Third, we exist to equip the saints. And fourth, we exist to evangelize the lost. So with that, today we're going to look at the first pillar, and then next Sunday we'll look at the last three. First, let's look at the first pillar. At Grace Bible Church, we exist to exalt God. Let me start with the words of John MacArthur. It is absolutely essential that a church perceive itself as an institution established for the glory of God. I fear that the church in America has descended from that holy purpose and focused instead on humanity. That may be the single most critical issue in the church today. Instead of focusing on the glory of God, we're focused on things below. With that, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 1. as you if you were here last week or if you heard the sermon last week we were in revelation last week with Aaron now i don't think there is a better book for showing you there there are books that can come to can equal this but i don't think there's any better book to show you the glory of god than revelation now as you're turning to revelation 1 i need i need to set the context for you Look at Revelation 1, 1, and 2. Here it says that God gave the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John to show his slaves what must soon take place. Now look down at verse 4. This is a letter from the Lord Jesus through the Apostle John who writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. Later in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus gives personalized messages to each of these churches. Listen as I read through John's greetings, starting in verse 4. John writes, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Now it's helpful for you to understand that John was the last surviving apostle. John the Apostle wrote Revelation while he was in exile on a small and barren island called Patmos. The Romans had banished him there because he faithfully preached the gospel. Now, I believe that he wrote Revelation around 94 to 96 A.D. Now, at that point in history, much had occurred. Jesus' death and Resurrection and his ascension was becoming a distant memory. All the apostles and many, if not all, those who witnessed the life of Christ were dead. Many had been martyred. The temple had been completely destroyed by the Romans. The gospel had spread far and wide, and many churches had been planted under the apostles' ministry. Now, listen carefully to Revelation 1 7. As John encourages his readers, he says this about the Lord. He said, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And the tribes of the earth were mourned over Him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In these verses, the Lord declares that He will return and every eye will see Him, even those who put Him on the cross. The Lord declares that He and He alone controls world history from eternity past to eternity future. And despite all the stuff that occurred, all the, the bad things that had occurred, God was still on His throne and He, will still, he still sovereignly causes all things to occur for His glory. Now, beloved, we could stop right there and we could declare Grace Bible Church's first pillar. We exist to exalt God. You see, we exalt Him because He is sovereign. Truly, there is nothing that can thwart Him According to the Apostle Paul, our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. In in Ephesians 1, 21, far above all rule and, and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Beloved, we serve an almighty Lord. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory in the church and in the world. And if we serve, church, if we serve, if we serve the Alpha and the Omega and the One who is and the One who was and the One who is to come, let me repeat the words of Paul in Romans 8. If we serve the One who is and the One who was and who is to come, listen to the words of Paul, who will separate us from the love of Christ will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is Paul writing, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Like I said, I could stop right there. Sermon preached. But I'm not. I'm not. Look at Revelation 1.9. Let's follow along as I read John's description of what he saw. John writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the witness of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write in a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I want you to listen carefully as John describes his vision of the Lord Jesus. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned i saw the seven or i saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands i saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash and his head was and his head and his hair were like were white like white wool and like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze when it when it was when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in his power. Now, if you're honest with yourself, what John describes here is unimaginable. He's been given a vision of the risen Savior in all His glory and majesty. For John, this must have brought back vivid memories uh, of the time in Matthew 17 when Jesus went up on the mountain. And in the words of Matthew, Jesus was transfigured before them and His face shone like the sun and His garments became white as light. Here in Revelation 1, John does exactly what any mortal man would do when the Son of Man appears to Him in all His glory. Look at His words in Revelation 1, 17. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. I want you to imagine for a moment being in John's sandals or bare feet. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's on a desolate island then he's confronted with the most amazing vision ever the vision of Jesus in all his glory and he falls like a dead man he falls like a dead man let that sink in for a moment and something happens that almost can't be fathomed especially considering the gravity of that situation Look at your text in verse 17. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not fear. Can you imagine the tenderness of that statement? He knew what John was feeling. The reverence, the awe that caused him to fall like a dead man. yet he lays his hand gently on his shoulder and said, do not fear. Do not fear. It's as if to say, I'm the one who walked all those dusty roads with you. I'm the one who loved you with a love that cannot be changed. I'm that same person. Listen to the rest of verses 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus tells John not to fear, because he is the Almighty. He is the first and the last. He is the one who has defeated death. We don't have to fear if we know Jesus, because he has conquered all the reasons that we would ever have for fear. Now look at verse 19. It tells John, Therefore write the things you have seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now you might call this verse the divine outline of Revelation. Jesus instructs John to write the things he has seen. That's John's vision in Revelation 1. And the things that are, that's Jesus' letters to the church churches that is in Revelation 2. And the things which will take place after these things, that's Revelation 4 chapter 4 through 21. It's the future. It's what John or what will happen after after that time. Now look at turn over and look at Revelation 4. After these things, after these things, That should ring a bell. Back to Revelation 119. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you you what must take place after these things. He says it again. That's that connection back to verse 19. Starting here, John... Is given a vision of what is to take place in the future. Now, read along with me as I read in uh, the verses two through four. In these verses, John gives us a description of the throne of God. John writes immediately, "I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he was sitting. He, he who was sitting, was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like." And emerald in appearance, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon these thrones I saw 24 elders sitting uh, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Look at verse 5. And out of the throne come flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. And the third had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Look at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is and who is to come. Now these, this last verse especially may be familiar because we read them last week. But that they may also remind you of two similar visions in Scripture. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah described God's throne using strikingly similar imagery and language. Isaiah says that one angel called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is, the, is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Angels are worshiping one on the throne, declaring His holiness, declaring that the whole earth is full of His glory. You see, Isaiah responded to this vision by recognizing His utter sinfulness, considering the utter holiness of God. Isaiah 6.5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. probably see a little similarity between him and John, John falling like a dead man. prophet Ezekiel had a similar vision in Ezekiel 1 he described seeing the throne of God and the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh and, and when he saw when he saw the appearance of his glory he fell on his face just like John just listen to his listen to his words in Ezekiel 1 as the appearance of of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of, radia- of the radiance all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And I saw this, and I fell on my face and heard the sound of a voice speaking. Had exactly, or at least very similar reaction to John. Very similar reaction to Isaiah. I already mentioned Matthew 17 where Jesus was transfigured before Peter and James and John and his face shone like the sun. I'm reminded of Exodus 33 where God gave Moses a glimpse of his glory. That brief encounter caused Moses to face to shine like the reflection or with the reflection of god's glory he even put a veil over his face because the people were afraid to come near him and that was just the reflection of his glory can you imagine his glory look back at revelation 4 9 and 10 John gives us a future glimpse of the worship around the throne. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their thrones before, their crowns before the thrones, saying... I want you to look at verse 11 now. <coughs> this is the verse that i've been running to get to i want you to fo- i want us to focus on this for a few minutes listen to the words of the 24 elders as they worship the triune god worthy are you our lord and our god worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of you, your will, they existed and were created. Here they proclaim that God alone is worthy of, of honor and glory. He's all, he is worthy. He alone is worthy. Let me say it another way. When all the things in heaven and on earth are weighed in the balance, our Lord... And God alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Everything. Political structure? Check. Material wealth? Check. The greatest man who's ever lived outside of Christ, that is? Check. When it's all weighed in the balance, all put on the balance, he uh, alone outweighs it. That's what John is saying at the end of verse 11. For you created all those things. And because of you, will they exist? Because of your will, that is, they existed and were created. You know, I've been questioned. Why I'm so insistent that we take a literal interpretation of Genesis 1. You know why? Because John does. Who created all things? Who created all things? God did. At Grace Bible Church, we exist to exalt God. We don't apologize for it. We don't shrink back from it. And let me just say this too we aren't embarrassed by it. We're absolutely not embarrassed by it. We exalt God because He alone is worthy. Tozer says this, God's glory is and must forever remain the Christian's true point of departure. Anything that begins anywhere else, whatever it is, is certainly not New Testament Christianity. End quote. I've also been questioned why I don't spend more time in sermon application. In other words, why don't we spend more time telling people how they should live? Well, it's funny. Listen to John MacArthur's response to that same question. He says this. You're deluded if you think you can tell people how to live their life, and that's motivation. In other words, you're sadly mistaken if you 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 feel that you can motivate or you believe that you can motivate people how to live by telling them what to do, by telling them where to shop, where to work, where to live, what hobbies they can and can't have, and how to raise their children, among other things. If you think that's how you're going to motivate people, you're deluded. It says this, again, this is John MacArthur. That's not motivation. What motivates someone to live a godly life is this overwhelming reality of who God is, who Christ is, the richness and depth of that understanding moves the heart. You ask yourself why we exist to exalt God? Because we want you to understand uh, the richness and the depth of understanding so that it would move your heart, so that you would live for Him. Because the world has the motivation that the the world wants to motivate you to live like the world. And the only thing that's going to cause you to live like Christ is knowing who he is. Sorry if I'm yelling. I'm so passionate about it. beloved we want you to have an overwhelming reality of the triune god which will move you just like it moved moses just like it moved isaiah just like it moved ezekiel just like it moved john just like it moved paul why do you think those men were able to uh, turn the world upside down with the gospel It was a reality of who they were preaching. It was the overwhelming reality that motivated them to live a holy life that pleases God. Spurgeon put it this way I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment, think about that. When did Spurgeon live? End of, the, yeah, yeah, end of the 19th century? So, a long time ago, right? Relatively speaking. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so li- little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. End quote. As we saw in Revelation 4.11... John proclaims why God is worthy to be received glory and honor and power because he created and sustains all things. Paul says much the same thing in Colossians 1.16, but here's what's amazing. Paul says those things specifically about the Lord Jesus. Just listen to Paul's words. For in him, in Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and it is invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus. We'll end today the sermon in Revelation 5. Turn there as we begin to prepare ourselves to observe the Lord's table. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and in all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, "Be blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. Friend, I want all of you to notice that every created thing will bow the knee to worship the one who sits on the throne. They will also worship the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, who came to take away the sins of the world, Here's the question. Are you worshiping now? Have you believed in the one who died on the cross for your sins? Are you trusting in, this, in his sin, atoning death on the cross? If not, Scripture clearly teaches that you are dead in your transgression. And you currently have a debt which you can never repay. It is only in Christ that you can be made alive and have the decrees which are against you canceled out, nailed to the cross. Scripture says you need to truly believe that Christ died for your sins and that he rose from the dead. Here at Grace Bible Church, we exist to exalt God. Donald Barnhouse says this, God's greatest glory is His grace. God's greatest glory is His grace. Friend, place your trust in Him and in Him alone, and He will save you. Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, may you get all the glory. May you get all the glory in the church. May you get all the glory in this world. Father, we exist as a church to exalt you. Would we exist to proclaim your glory in all the earth. Father, may we do so as we make disciples of all the nations. Father, may we teach them, baptize them and teach them all that You have commanded. Lord, I pray this morning that if anybody here don't truly know You, that You would Invade them with your Holy Spirit. That you would grasp a hold of them and save them miraculously. Make them alive. Make them alive. Save them by your grace, if it be your will. In Christ's name, amen. on the Lord's Day, the first Sunday of the month, we observe the Lord's table. We take the time according to The Apostle Paul, speaking of the of communion of the Lord's table, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So we regularly gather to gather as a church so that we might proclaim the Lord's death as we eat the bread and drink the cup. I want you to take I just spent the last few minutes to remind you of the glory of our Savior and remind you that God's greatest glory is his grace in Ephesians In Ephesians chapter 3, chapter 2, that is. We quote this often. We quote it often because we want you to remember it. We quote it often because it's so true. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We want to take this time to remember what Christ has accomplished. Again, another verse that, that we quote so often, especially in communion, again is to so you might it just we want it to sink deep. We want it to sink deep. When you're on your deathbed, I want you to remember He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As you lay on your deathbed, I want you to remember that it is not your work that grants you entrance into heaven. It's what Christ has accomplished. I want you to, to, to meditate on that truth even today, even now. have the uh men that has can come and pass out the elements. As they're passing them out, have jo- uh, Justin and the team, Sam and Emily lead us in song. Just give us a, a minute or so to think about the truths, and then we can sing together.